0: The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect.
1: Our teaching text this evening comes from Ruth 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. "'Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, "'and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, "'but do not make yourself known to the man "'until he has finished eating and drinking. "'But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, "'then go and uncover his feet and lie down, "'and he will tell you what to do.' "'And she replied, "'All that you say I will do.' "'So she went to the threshing floor "'and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. "'And when Boaz had eaten and drunk,' and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. Then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another, and he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, "'How did you fare, my daughter?' Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, "'These six measures of barley he gave to me.' For he said to me, "'You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law.' She replied, "'Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today.'" This is the word of the Lord. You may now be seated.
0: Amen. Amen. Good to be with you this evening. If we haven't met before, uh, my name is Tim. I get the privilege of serving as pastor here at Citizens. Root chapter 3, uh, as Lauren just read for us, is where we're going to be hanging out tonight. You're going to want a Bible or a phone or a bulletin. Uh, it has it printed on there as well. Something where you can walk through the text uh, with us. Uh, before we hop in and, and talk about where we're going and all that kind of stuff, let me just pray for us. Uh, kind of center our minds and our hearts around uh, what it is that God has for us. Let's, let's pray together. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for, for Jesus on the cross. As we just sang about, God, that there's no greater love. There's no greater way. There's no greater name. And we, we can search. We can look. We can seek. We can try to find, Lord, but it all ends up empty except for you. You are what is lasting. You are what is true. You are what is good, Lord. And so as we consider Ruth 3 and your word, God, would you help us to rest our hearts on you, the solid rock. You are the firm foundation. You are what is lasting. You are what is true. We love you. For all these things in Christ's name, amen. As we get started this evening, let me ask you a question that philosophers and scholars and really everybody have been considering for the past, I don't know, a couple thousands of years. And that question is this, does the end justify the means? Does the end justify the means? Does a good outcome, a good goal, some would even say a righteous goal, justify doing whatever it takes in order to make it happen? Does a good outcome, a good result justify doing whatever it is that you want, even if what you want is not righteous or good or holy? Have you ever considered how our culture wrestles with this idea? right? Throughout TV and movies, these, I, this idea is kind of everywhere, right? Does a good goal justify bad action? So you think about uh, the antiheroes of television, people like Walter White, right? Good goal. He wants to provide for his family. He wants to pay for his cancer treatments, starts a meth lab. Or you think about Robin Hood, right? Robin Hood, good goal. I want to provide for the poor. I want to take care of their needs. So I'm going to attack and steal from the rich, or think about villains, right, like Thanos from the Marvel movies, right? Kind of good goal. He wants to restore balance to the universe, kills half of all living creatures. Think about Darth Vader. Good goal. He wants to save his wife and his unborn child, kills all the younglings. He does other evil stuff too, but that's the main bad one. <laughs> Spoiler. Think about sports. Right? New England Patriots or the Houston Astros. Good goal. They want to win the Super Bowl or the World Series. Bad means they cheat a lot. (laughs) Right? Does a does a good goal justify bad actions? Our culture, our culture wrestles with this all of the time. Now let me ask you another question. What about in your life? What about in your story? What about in your journey? What about in your day-to-day? How do you wrestle with wanting a good thing? but waiting on the Lord in the midst of that, wanting a good result. But am I going to be willing to do whatever it takes to get there? Let me give you some hypothetical scenarios. I really want good children that grow up to be responsible adults that uh, give back to society. Good goal. What am I willing to sacrifice and to shift about my life in order to get there? I really want to provide for my family. I really want to be able to give back to those in need. Good goal. What am I willing to shift a little bit on in order to get there? I really want a spouse who loves me, who who cares for me, who provides for me, treats me well. What values or biblical standards am I willing to shift or adjust in order to get that good goal? The times in my life where I've noticed that I've been pressed most with this question of functionally, do I believe that the ends justify the means? Is when I'm stuck in this proverbial ground that tonight we'll call the middle. Do you know what I mean by the middle? That place in your life where you're waiting for the resolution. That place in your life where you just feel stuck, where you can almost see and grab at and taste the outcome that you want, but it just feels like right now I'm just stuck. Throughout uh, the month of November, we're working through the book of Ruth, four weeks for four chapters, and we're asking ourselves this kind of overarching, larger question of will we trust God? In week one, we asked the question, will we trust God when we suffer? And then last week, we asked the question, will we trust God when we prosper? But tonight, I want to ask us a third question. That question is this, will we trust God in the middle? Will we trust God in the middle? Will we we trust God in that spot in our lives where things are not yet resolved? Those moments where we feel stuck, when we feel like he's not moving fast enough for our liking or limited patience. When we're waiting for our redemption, for our resolution, when we're waiting for God to fix it or to solve it or to bring it to a conclusion. Will we wait on God? Will we trust him in the not yet? Will we trust the Lord in the waiting, or will we take matters into our own hands, using whatever means necessary to get the outcome that we want? That's the, the question for us tonight. Will we trust God in the middle? Ruth chapter 3, to kind of catch you back up to where we've been in the story, if you've missed or knew, uh, Ruth chapter 1, we're introduced to a woman named Naomi. Naomi is the wife of a man named Elimelech, and they travel to the the Moab, this land that are enemies of God's people because of a famine in their hometown. And they stay there 10 years, and Naomi suffers a lot. Her husband dies, her two sons both die, and so we kind of end chapter 1 where she's headed back to her town of Bethlehem with what she considers a nothing of a daughter-in-law. She's like, I got this Ruth lady, she's fine. She's just kind of here for the ride. And then in chapter 2, we see some glimmers of hope. We see that Ruth goes to the the field and she's gleaning, she's providing for her and Naomi. She meets Boaz. They start kind of talking. Boaz is like, I'm going to provide for you. Take whatever you need. I want to make sure that you have enough. But since we left that scene in Ruth chapter 2, we now know that seven weeks have passed between the end of Ruth chapter 2 and the beginning of Ruth chapter 3, and that's going to matter for what we're about to talk about. All right, Ruth chapter 3, I want to walk through the text together, help us make sense of what is happening with laying at people's feet, and then I'm going to circle around at the end and try to apply it into our lives. All right, Ruth chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 1. Now Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? So this is a direct call back to Ruth chapter 1, verse 6, where Naomi's pleading with Ruth and her sister Orpa: don't come back with me. I want you to have rest. It's this kind of Old Testament phrase for finding a husband, essentially. So I want you to find a household, to be cared for, to be provided for, to have a place where you know your needs are met and you can rest. And she says, Hey, I know that Boaz has been good. I know he's been taking care of us, but it's not enough. I want more for you. And she's a little bit selfish too she also wants more for herself she knows if Ruth gets married and has grandchildren that she's going to be provided and protected as well in the years to come verse 2 is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were see he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor so she says hey remember that Boaz guy Remember how in chapter 2, she didn't say that because they didn't have chapters by then, but she said, hey, remember how seven weeks ago I pointed out that he could be one of our redeemers? This is what she says, chapter 2, verse 20. She says, the man, talking about Boaz, is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. She says, hey, remember seven weeks ago when I brought that up? That he could be more than just a provider, more than just a benefactor? That he could actually be a redeemer? That he could call us his own? That he could actually welcome us into his household? Remember that? What Naomi has in mind here is that Boaz would play the role of what the Old Testament calls a kinsman redeemer. So let's talk about this for just a second. It's going to play a prominent role in chapters 3 and 4. So the role of a kinsman redeemer, stay with me, I know I'm going to nerd out for a second, it's going to matter. The role of a kinsman redeemer is something that's set up by God in his Old Testament Mosaic law that he gives to his people. So in Exodus 6, verse 6, God says, Israel, I am your great redeemer, but then there are ways that he establishes by which his people. Would be his tangible redeemers to one another. So he says, I'm your great redeemer. I provide for you the most, but I'm going to establish ways in my law that you are going to care for one another. And one of those ways is the kinsman redeemer. And it is exactly what it sounds like it's a kinsman, someone who's related to someone else redeeming. Caring for them, providing for them, stepping in in their time of need. If I could give us a straightforward definition, this is what it means. A kinsman redeemer is a male relative who had the privilege or responsibility to act for a family member who was in trouble, danger, or need. So if you're a kinsman redeemer, and someone in your family is in need, you are the one called to step in and to provide. You're to care for them. And there's a number of pretty crazy, specific ways that God outlines the role in which a kinsman redeemer was supposed to fill. So for instance, if someone was murdered, It was the role of a kinsman redeemer to step out and seek redemptive justice on behalf of their family member. They were supposed to take that murderer to trial, make sure that they were prosecuted and all of that. Another example, if someone was sold into slavery, it was the role of a kinsman redeemer to actually go and buy back or to purchase back that person and to free them from their slavery and welcome them back into the family. If someone had to sell property or land that the family owned in order to provide for their house, it was the role of a kinsman redeemer to go buy the land in order to keep it in the family and keep it in perpetuity, and then they could hand it back off at the appropriate time. I'll give you one more. If a man died childless, it was the role of a kinsman redeemer, typically a close brother, who would father a son for the dead man as a means of preserving that man's family line and heritage. So there's all types of ways in which a kinsman redeemer was supposed to step in and care for and provide for someone in need at great cost to themselves. It's going to play a big role in what we're talking about. So this is what Naomi is hoping for for Boaz to be for Ruth. She says, yeah, he's providing for us, but there can be more. He can be a redeemer. He can welcome us in. Now, here's where things get a little bit crazy, a little bit PG-13. Any kids? Close your ears. Verse 3. That's a joke. Y'all got this is too crazy of a passage. I have got to talk back. Verse three, wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. What? <laughs> All right. Here's what's happening here. She literally does say this. She says, go take a shower, get cleaned up, wait until he's had a little too much to drink. In the middle of the night, go uncover his feet, lay down. He's going to wake up. He's going to be a little bit shocked, but he'll tell you what to do. There's her literal instructions to Ruth. Now here, a few disclaimers before we get into what's happening here. Number one, this is terrible dating advice. All right. If you're like, hey, I'm really interested in this guy. And your friend's like, don't worry. I read Ruth three. I know the plan. Take a shower, get dressed up, wait until the middle of the night, sneak into his apartment, uncover his feet, lay down when he wakes up, all good to go, he knows you're interested. Don't listen if that's the advice that you are given. It's terrible dating advice. Second thing, real quick caveat before we dive into it, I also don't want you to hear, based on our reading of this passage, that it's inappropriate biblically for a woman to express interest in a man. So some pastors will read this passage and interpret it and try to tell you that the biblical outworkings of the roles of men and women means that as a woman, you cannot express interest if you want to go on a date with a guy. That is bad biblical application, okay? If you are interested in a guy, you are welcome to ask them out. Lindsay asked me out on our first date. Proof it works. (laughs) She's not here. She would hate that I said that. (laughs) Verse 3. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. Okay, here's what's going on here. Three things you have to understand. Number one, this is not a good thing, all right? A lot of people will try to say that this is Naomi telling Ruth to step into an ancient Jewish tradition of how women in that culture would express interest in a man in an often male-dominated society. That's not what's happening. Here's why we know that. There is no biblical warrant anywhere else in the scriptures, Or in any ancient Jewish text where this practice is described, taught, or walked through by anybody else. This is not an ancient Jewish custom that she just happens to step into. The second thing is that the language that Naomi uses is explicitly sexual language. When she says to Ruth, wash yourself, put on your cloak, that's the same language that's used in Song of Solomon, where Solomon is describing how women should make themselves physically appealing to their husbands. It's overtly sexual. As well, you can actually translate when she says, go lift up the cloak over his feet. You can actually translate his feet as his entire legs. So there's lots of sexual stuff going on here. Number three is that this, forgot my third point. I was too worried about making the joke. Number three, she says, remember what she said to Ruth a few weeks ago. Right. 222. She says to Ruth, hey, stay in the field, stay in his fields so that you don't get in trouble, so that somebody doesn't come and harm you and do you wrong. And so seven weeks ago, she was worried about Ruth in the field around other women in daylight. And now she's sending her to the field by herself in the middle of the night. This is not good advice. So, so what's happening here in what Naomi is telling Ruth to do? Well, we don't know exactly what her goal is or her motive is. It could be that she wants to send Ruth to Boaz so that he'll sleep with her, get her pregnant, and then he has to redeem her. That's, that's one option. The second option is that she is just like, hey, go. And this is so overtly clear that we need him to redeem us that he has no choice. But he's like, all right, I'll redeem you because you're crazy and you're at my feet. We don't know her exact motivation. We don't know which one it is. Here's what we do know. Naomi is taking matters into her own hands and disobeying God. Naomi is saying, hey, it's been seven weeks, and Boaz has not shown up. He has not redeemed us. He has not stepped forward. I've asked the Lord for rest for you. I've asked the Lord to provide this for you. He is not showing up, and so I'm going to take matters into my own hands, regardless of what danger I put her in, regardless of what it means for Boaz, and regardless of what it means for anybody else's read on the situation. I am going to fix it myself. That's her response to the middle. That's her response to what she is going through. In fact, she's actually acting just like her husband Elimelech did ten years ago when he took them to Moab right? This same impulsivity, this same, hey, we have to fix it ourselves. We're not going to wait on the Lord in the famine. We're not going to wait on the Lord to redeem us. We're going to step out and do it ourselves, is still alive in Naomi. Here's how Pastor Sinclair Ferguson describes it. He says, behind her risky strategy lies Naomi's old spiritual rashness. It is the residue of the spirit that earlier led to emigration from the promised land. If God does not do things speedily enough for us in our way, then we will take matters into our own hands. We devise our own ways of bringing to pass what God has promised to give to us. Read that sentence again. We devise our own ways of bringing to pass what God has promised to give us. We refuse to wait for him to bring his own purposes to fruition. That describes the middle. It describes where Naomi is, right? She's not willing to wait on the Lord. Seven weeks ago, she was saying, the Lord's kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now, seven weeks, her impatience is already saying, no, we got to take matters into our own hands. I got to do it myself. You got to go. You got to redeem us. She doesn't know how to wait. So she says, go and make it happen. Ruth, verse five, Ruth replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Verse eight, at midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Imagine that. Verse nine, he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. So notice this Ruth's actions take a sharp turn from Naomi's instructions right? So Naomi says, go do this, lay down at his feet. He will tell you what to do. Remain silent. He'll tell you what's up. He'll tell you the next step. But as soon as Boaz wakes up, he's like, whoa, what is going on? Who are you? Because it's dark. And she goes, I'm Ruth. And then she immediately diverges from the instructions and makes it very, very clear to Boaz, hey, I'm not here for whatever you think I'm here for. I'm here for one reason and one reason only, redemption. I want to make this clear. And as she says in verse 10, or verse 9, she says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So remember chapter 2, verse 12, a lot of throwbacks in Ruth, it's actually really fun. Uh, verse, two, verse 12 of chapter 2, Boaz acknowledges, Ruth's like, why are you caring for me? Why are you letting me glean from your field? I'm just a foreigner. And he says what? He says, you have entrusted yourselves yourself under the wings of the Lord. And now Ruth says to Boaz, hey, spread your wings over me. In other words, I know the Lord's taking care of me, but I want you to be a physical representation of that care that God is providing for me already. Because I know that the Lord's providing. I know I'm hidden under his wings. I know I've entrusted myself to him. I know that my God, that her God is my God. I know that I'm in on the Lord. I'm trusting in him. But I need you to step out and be the physical provision by which the Lord is going to care for me and provide for me. So now Boaz is pressed with a choice. How's he going to react? We're meant to feel some tension in this scene. Verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Boaz, remember, was called a worthy man. Now, Ruth is a worthy woman. This foreigner, this person that didn't worship God, this person from Moab, the the land of the enemies of God's people, is now considered around Bethlehem because of her faithfulness, a worthy woman, someone who loves the Lord, who's following the one true God. Verse 12, and now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. Boaz is set up as a direct contrast to Naomi in the text. Right, so Naomi, in the middle, is not waiting on God, not trusting in his providence or his timing. She wants to move ahead and make it happen, rush it. But Boaz is willing to wait. He's willing to, to trust the Lord's guidance. He wants to redeem Ruth. He's like, this is a good thing. I want to redeem you. I want to act in this way, but I'm not going to run ahead of the Lord. We're not going to do this outside of God's design. There's someone who, according to the rules of kinsman redeemership, is, has the first rights to redeem you. And so I'm not going to rush ahead of God. We're not gonna do it my way, we're not gonna do it the way I want, we're not gonna speed things up. I'm gonna wait on the Lord. I'm gonna trust him, and if this other guy wants to redeem you, that's great. But if he doesn't, don't worry, I will redeem you. In either way, you are going to be redeemed. He promises this to Ruth, and if that's not enough, he sends her home with before 30 pounds, now 80 pounds of grain. You should imagine just Ruth heading back into the city, 80 pounds of grain, just yeah. But as promise, hey, tell Naomi, this is a promise. You will be redeemed. Either me or the other guy, I promise. Verse 16, let's finish it out. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. I just love that scene where she's like 80 pounds of grain and Naomi's like, how'd it go? And she's like, 80 pounds! Grain, Verse 18, she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle, settle the matter today. I want you to notice this. Boaz has urgency, but he doesn't move ahead of the Lord. Right, he's urgent. He's going to settle the matter today. As soon as the sun comes up, he's going to go to the gate. Chapter 4, we'll read about it. And he's going to make sure that someone's going to redeem Ruth. He's going to make sure they are provided for. But even in his urgency to take action, he is still going to go about it the way the Lord has called and commanded. His urgency to take action in the middle is not against or outside of or apart from or above or around or underneath or anything like that. The will of the Lord. He's willing to do the Lord's steps. All right, that's chapter three. Let me help apply this into our lives. We're asking the question, will we trust God in the middle? What does all this mean? Besides bad dating advice, what does chapter 3 mean for us? Here's what I want you to see. I want you to see the stark contrast between Naomi and Boaz. All right, here's Naomi. Let's talk about her. Naomi, in the midst of the middle, takes matters into her own hands. In the midst of her waiting on the Lord, in the midst of her waiting on God's providence, in the midst of her, when are we going to be redeemed she, wait, she takes matters into her own hands. It's been seven weeks since they got back to Bethlehem. Seven weeks of Boaz providing for them, but still no redemption. She has, notice, she has a good goal. Chapter 3, verse 1, she says, I want rest for you. I want a good thing for you. I want you to have a redeemer, but God isn't making it happen, so we're going to have to do our own thing. But listen, if you would put yourself in Naomi's shoes for just a second— if you've been keeping up with her life through this series so far, can you actually really blame her for what she does? Like, think about the life that Naomi has lived up until this point. Ten years in a foreign nation, ten years of famine in her homeland. Her husband has passed away. Her two sons have passed away. She has no grandchildren. She has no protection. She has no division. She has suffered much. And finally, they go back to Bethlehem, and she's got Ruth with her, which is good, and Boaz is kind of providing, but it's still not the way that she feels like the Lord is going or should provide. Can you just put herself in your shoes? Of course, it kind of makes sense. It's still wrong, but it kind of makes sense for her to not trust God here, right? Like, Lord, where have you been in the midst of this? God, Where have you been in the midst of the death? Where have you been in the midst of the suffering? Where have you been in the midst of the heartache and sad and lack? Where have you been? And the Lord says, I've given you Ruth. I brought you back to Bethlehem. I'm giving you Boaz. You have to trust me, but continually, Naomi just doesn't want. To. Here's why. She can't trust God with the middle, with the means, because she doesn't trust God with the end. So you have to understand by this passage. She doesn't trust that God is actually going to provide rest and a redeemer for Ruth. And so she, because she doesn't trust him with the end, she cannot trust him with the middle. If we don't trust God, with his outcomes and his plans, then the next logical step is that we also won't trust him with the steps to take matters into our own hands. I've shared about this before, but I hate uncertainty like really do not like uncertainty. My default, if you're familiar uh, with kind of root idols, my default is control. I love control. I want to be in control. Five seconds left on the clock, tie game. Give me the ball. I want the ball in my hands. I want to know what's to come. I want to know the plan to get there. I want to be in control. Some of you guys are like, yep, we know. I want to be in control. So much so that this has played out in my life. So when I was a kid, we used to play this game where we'd be like, hey, if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you have? You guys ever played that game? And every time, it's a lame superpower, but every time I'd be like, I want to know the future. That's my superpower. Forget flying, forget super speed, forget whatever. I want to know the future, which it shows even as like an eight-year-old. Control. I just want control, tell me the future. I've talked about this before, but this impacts all areas of my life, including my movie watching. So I unashamedly love to look up the endings of movies before I see the ending. I know, it's great. Here's what happens. I don't do it before I start the movie, okay? Here's what happens. About midway through the movie. It reaches the peak point of tension where in my heart, I just can't take it anymore. And so here's the deal. Wikipedia, fun fact, has every plot of every movie, even before it's released, fun fact sometimes. And so I kind of hide my phone from Lindsay and I'm like, Wikipedia, and I read the plot and instantly I feel so much relief and I enjoy the movie more. I just do. You don't have to agree with me. I do. I like to know the ending. We were watching Dune a few weeks ago. Uh... (laughs) <laughs> and halfway through, it's like this really kind of peak scene. I won't say anything, I won't spoil it. Uh, it's kind of like peak nervousness type of scene. And I, Lindsay looks over, and I'm on my phone on the other couch in our basement. And she's like, Are you looking up the ending? <laughs> no. <laughs> I had to confess that I told her no at the time, and then I told her I did when she looked at the sermon last week. Um, <laughs> I'm fine. I can't take it, though. I can't. I have to know the ending. I do it with every single movie. Last night, I watched Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings, and I was like halfway through. I was like, I kind of know how it ends. I just get so nervous. Here's the problem for me and for you, if you're a little bit like me. We don't know the ending of our lives. Just don't. You don't know the ending of your life. And if you're anything like me, if you're human, that is a terrifying thing. afternoon i was working out uh on the elliptical because that's what i do and i was listening to a podcast and uh, i was like three hours two hours before i was supposed to come here and the guy on the podcast said this quote and it's been kind of rattling around in my brain for the past few hours he said the people that i know that need control the most are often the most afraid i was like well i can't work out anymore because i'm crying the people who need control the most are often the most afraid Because here's the deal, my need for control, my need to know everything about my life, not only how it turns out, but how it gets to how it turns out, is because I am afraid. I don't trust the kindness of the Lord. I don't trust his goodness. I don't trust his sovereignty like I should. I don't trust his providence like I should. And so I want to know the end, but I also want to know every step to get to the end because I don't trust him. So unlike movies, I can't just Google it. I can't Wikipedia the plot of my life. So I feel often stuck in the middle. Church, what do you do in your middles? What do you do in your middles? I don't know what your middle is. Maybe it's while you wait for the job application, while you're waiting through relational conflict. Maybe for you, the middle is waiting and praying and hoping for marriage, waiting and, and praying and hoping for children, waiting for the medical diagnosis, waiting for healing waiting for sanctification and redemption? How do you handle your middle? Are you just a bundle of anxiety? Oh, what's going to happen? 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 Do you lash out in frustration and anger at the world around you and the other people who are also not giving you the control that you want? Do you resort to grumbling and gossip? Do you anxiously Google every possible scenario or diagnosis, wondering what's happening? Do you turn to old patterns of numbing the pain with your frustration? Alcohol, porn, binging food. What do you do with your middle? How do you soothe that anxiety in your heart in the middle? Naomi fails to trust the Lord. She takes matters into her own hands. She sins against God and against, against Ruth and against Boaz. She puts them in a compromising situation. She rebels against the Lord's design and her desire to take control. And yet, we're also given this positive contrast of Boaz, who's, who's also in the middle in Ruth chapter three, right? He expresses in verses 10 and 11, I want to redeem you, Ruth. I want to step in. I want to be the kinsman redeemer, but there's another, and so I'm not going to go around that. We're not going to do it our own way. We're going to wait, and we're going to walk the steps the Lord has given us to walk. I'm going to go consult this guy. I'm going to give him the proper chance. Boaz wants to honor the process given By the Lord. And so he takes decisive action. He goes to the gate the next day, but he's going to do it the Lord's way. So, in contrast to Naomi, Boaz waits on God's providence and timing. He waits. Once again, proves himself to be a worthy man, a man following the Lord. He doesn't take matters into his own hands. He doesn't let the end justify the means. He's going to walk out God's design and trust the Lord in the middle. And in doing so, Boaz is a tangible example of Psalm 62. Psalm 62 is this famous psalm from David where he repeats over and over again in the midst of his heartache, this invitation for his soul to wait on the Lord. This is what he says, verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 62. It says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken." He says, the Lord brings salvation. It's not up to me. I don't save myself. I'm not the rock. I'm not the one in control. I'm not the one who seizes it and does it myself. I'm not the one who forges it ahead. I wait on the Lord. The Lord who is my rock. Naomi says, this is what I want, Lord. So I'm going to make it happen. But Boaz says, this is what I want, Lord. So I'm going to trust you and I'm going to do it your way. Psalm 62 is an invitation for for all of us in our middles, that we would wait on God, that we would trust in him, that we would believe and remember that from him alone our salvation comes, that he is our rock, that he is our fortress. I love Psalm 62 because David feels the need to repeat it three times because of how often his soul forgets it. Over and over in this psalm, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord. He is the rock, not our best laid plans, not our best efforts, not our own wills for our lives, not our ability to control. And David knows this. And so this is how he, he says in verse 10 near the end of the psalm. He says, put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Everything that you or I try to do or grasp at or look to in the middle that are not God are offering a false hope. They are not the rock. They will not give us the peace we crave. They might create an illusion. Sometimes it feels good to have a little bit of control, doesn't it? At least to feel like we have a little bit of control. It's a false hope. Ultimately, it's a lie. Your anxiety, your impatience, your frustrations are lying to you, and they're telling you that if you knew the end or if you could control the end, that things would be better. And Psalm 62 says, No, if riches increase, set not your hope on them. They are not the rock. You knowing the end is not the rock. You being in control of the process is not the rock. You being able to lay all the plans for your life and having everything turn out exactly how you want is not the rock. The Lord is the rock. He is the salvation. God is the rock. The money's not the rock. A relationship status change is not the rock. A drama filled life, free life is not the rock. A good diagnosis is not the rock. A resolution is not the rock. God is the rock. That's what Boaz gets and Naomi doesn't that God is trustworthy. And that's the invitation for us as we consider this chapter, as we consider this story, that God is trustworthy with the ends and with the means. With what he provides and the process by which he provides. With the result and the ride that gets us to the result. And it might not end how we want. It might not be the ride that we want. It might not be the provision that we want. And it might not be when we want God is still trustworthy. He's still good. He's still faithful. So the question for us is will we trust God in the middle? Let me close with this. The story of Ruth chapter 3 of Naomi waiting in the middle takes place in the midst of a larger waiting for the people of God, a larger middle than just them in their middle waiting for a Redeemer. This takes place in a larger waiting of the Israelite people of God waiting for their Messiah. This story of Ruth actually takes place exactly in the middle of God's redemptive history for the Israelites. It's 1,200 years after he first gives the promise to Abraham that he's going to bless all nations through him. And it's exactly 1,200 years before Jesus Christ, the Messiah, shows up on the scene. You can't get any more middle than 1,200 and 1,200. And that's where Ruth takes place. So do me a favor as we close. Put yourself one more time in the shoes of an ancient Israelite. Now imagine you're in the midst of this waiting for your Messiah. 1,200 years of prophecies and promises. 1,200 years of suffering and doubt. 1,200 years of waiting for the one who was to come. Can you imagine the doubt in the midst of that middle? Can you imagine the uncertainty in the midst of that middle? Then you sit down, maybe in the, the temple or around a fire, Somebody reads the story of Ruth, and they read about Naomi and her suffering and her waiting. Then you get to chapter three, and you see glimpses of a redeemer. Then you get to chapter four, spoiler alert for next week, and you see that they're redeemed. Then you remember that this is just one example of many where God has been faithful to his people. So you think about Abraham. You think about how Abraham tried several times to screw things up and to go his own way and to take matters into his own hands and do his own thing, and yet God remained faithful. You think about Moses, who was afraid to go to Pharaoh, who killed an Egyptian and fled a town for 40 years. You think about his own lack of desire to step into what God had for him, and yet God remains faithful. You think about Joshua, one of the only ones who said, no, Canaan is the promised land. Let's step into the promised land. Let's take what God has given us. And yet everyone else around you is afraid. And yet God doesn't desert his people. He's still faithful. And you remember all of these stories and you remember and you see his tangible faithfulness to Ruth and to Naomi and your heart starts to build with joy and with hope. God has been faithful. He will still be faithful. Now, fast forward. November 14th, 2021, Charlotte, North Carolina, 6:02 p.m. Think about your own redemptive history. Hear the story of Ruth. God's faithfulness to Boaz and to Naomi and to Ruth. Now think about all those stories. His faithfulness to Abraham, his faithfulness to Moses, his faithfulness to Joshua, keep going. His faithfulness to David, his faithfulness to Solomon, his faithfulness to Jeremiah, his faithfulness to Malachi, and ultimately, get up to your life. How has he been faithful to you? Think about your own redemptive history. Make a mark. Where over the past 20, 30, 35, 40, 50 years of your life, mark the moments, where has God been faithful? Because what can happen in the midst of our middle is we can be clouded. We can doubt We can have uncertainty. God, are you going to be faithful in this? And we can forget that we have walked hundreds of middles up until this point. We can forget all the middles in which God was faithful. And it didn't always look how we wanted. It wasn't always the timing that we wanted. It doesn't always turn out exactly how we wanted. That's God and his providence and his kindness. Yet God was always faithful. But then here's the deal. Look to one more act in the redemptive history. Jesus, taking on flesh, living the perfect life that you and I cannot live yet going to the cross, dying the death that you and our sins deserved. And remember, this was the promise for 2,400 years from Abraham to Jesus. God was faithful. So as you're the Old Testament Israelite, you're reading the story of Ruth, and you're saying, okay, God was faithful here. Surely he'll be faithful in the Messiah to come. But as we read the story today, we can say, yes, surely God will be faithful here because he was faithful and the Messiah did come. And that's the good news for us in Ruth chapter 3. The good news for us is that in any of our middles, wherever we are, job, family, relationships, sickness, money, wherever our middle is, that God has been faithful to us, but even more importantly, he's been faithful to his people through Jesus. And that's the good news for us. We can rest in that. We can rest in the ultimate hope that Jesus has provided our greatest need, which if you haven't picked up on it yet, is the story of Ruth every time we keep ending Jesus is faithful. How do we know that? Or God is faithful. How do we know that? Jesus on the cross. God is faithful. How do we know that? Jesus on the cross. God is faithful in our suffering. How do we know that? Jesus on the cross. God is faithful in our prosperity. How do we know that? Jesus on the cross. God is faithful in our middle. How do we know that? Uh, Let me guess, Jesus on the cross. That, we look back at that and we let our redemptive history do the work of building our hope, building our peace building our faith, building our confidence. God did not let his people down. He did send Jesus, sacrificed on the cross, and yet Jesus also got up. And so he was not faithless then. He will not be faithless now. So we can trust him in the middle. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for Ruth. Thank you for crazy stories in the Old Testament where people are doing some weird stuff, Lord. But thank you that in the midst of all of it, you shine through. Your kindness shines through. Your faithfulness shines through. God, that you didn't abandon Naomi even every time she tried to go in her own way and do her own thing and take matters into her own hands. You remained faithful and kind. You provided. Lord, so I pray in the midst of whatever the middles are that we're going through. In the midst of whatever the uncertainties are, the the tangible outcomes we can reach for, we just want to see happen, Lord, wherever the middle is, where it's uncertain and clouded, God, wherever we're at in the middle, Lord, that you would remind us that you are faithful. And Naomi took seven weeks to forget, Lord, we take so much less time. We forget so often that you are faithful to your people. That you are gracious to your people, that you provide for your people, Lord. And so I pray for, for those of us that are in the middle right now, for those of us who are about to be in the middle, for those of us who will be in the middle, when it comes, Lord, would you help us remember that you are faithful. And so that means you provide for your people. And it might not look how we want or when we want or what we want, Lord, but you are still kind, you are still good, you are still the giver of all good things, Lord. And so I pray that we will trust you. Ultimately, God, would you give us a vision of the cross, Jesus in our place, on our behalf, the fulfilled promise, evidence, the greatest evidence of your faithfulness to your people. We love you. all these things in Christ's name, amen.